Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. As you turn there, I just want to remind you, we, last week we met as a church in the evening. Thanks for those of you who were able to, to come and join us for that time together as a family. And uh, if you didn't see in the email update this past week, uh, Christine and Mike have put together uh, a video of, of our conversation about church revitalizing and we uh, also with the Q&A that followed afterwards and some words more specifically about our opportunity in, in near Chillicothe at Rome Baptist Church. And so if you weren't able to be here last week and you'd like to kind of get up to date on, on some of the things that we're thinking through, you can email Christine and she'll send you a, a link to that and, and I'll be in the, the, uh, the email updates. And if you're not getting the email updates, they are action-packed. You want those things, those are a great thing to, to, to get each week for uh, what's going on in the life of the church. Well, we're here in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Next week we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 4, so you can be reading ahead on that as we do this overview of uh, Samuel, uh, beginning this year and, and finishing next year. And would invite you, if you're able to, to stand with me as we read from God's Word together. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I'm reading from the UK edition of the English Standard Versions. So there's some, sometimes there's some word changes. Some of you have asked me about this recently. So, so there's some slight word changes in the UK publication, but uh, that's, that's what we're reading from. First Samuel chapter 3. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place, did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On the, that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us this morning as we read and listen to and obey his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We are grateful for the, the good news of your son Jesus. 
Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. This morning we recognize our, our great separation from you. We are aware of our sin. Help us to be even more aware of the ways in which we have failed to honor you and to, to see you as holy, to walk in perfect obedience to you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the, the miracle of the incarnation. Uh, God made flesh and, and the reality in which we can, can, can know you through your son Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, for his death, for his resurrection. And Lord, we place our, our faith and our confidence in him and in him alone this morning as we come to you. And now we ask that you would speak to us through your holy word, that we would be in reverence and in awe as, as we look at it that we would believe it, we would obey it, that we would have life in it. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You and I need to know what God wants us to do. Both as, as a church and as individuals, we need to know what is it that God wants us to do. So, for example, as a church, what is it that, that God wants us to do? How does God want us to, to worship him? Over the past few weeks, as happens every time around this time of year, I've gotten a lot of questions. Okay, so how do you think we should worship God at Christmas? How should we, how should we celebrate Christmas as Christians in a church on a Sunday morning? And, and a lot of people have different opinions on this, and, and some people have, have told me, you know, don't you think we shouldn't celebrate Christmas at all? Like maybe you don't even acknowledge that it's going on around the culture around us, and, and you know, the, the Bible doesn't say celebrate Jesus' birth in December, so, so maybe we shouldn't either. And uh, some people have said, well, you know, Christmas is, is amazing, and of course we should talk about the, the miracle of the incarnation. And, and in fact, every message in December should be a Christmas message. And, and it, by the way, I'm sensitive to that, and so if that's you this morning, you can just make a little bit of an edit uh, in your bulletin this morning. This is for you. The message this morning is entitled, The Ministry of the Word and the Life of the Church at Christmas. So really that works with any message in December. You can just add the words at Christmas at the end. You know. But how do we know? How do we know what to, to do, how to worship God on a Sunday morning? Maybe some of you saw the video that, that I did a few weeks ago of a, a drum line being suspended from the ceilings of a worship center preparing for uh, Christmas worship. And, and you looked at that and you thought, well, that can't be right, but, but why? You know, why would I say that that, that doesn't seem like a, a wise a biblical thing to do to, to worship God on a, a Sunday morning? And, and beyond just the church and beyond just Sunday morning, just in all areas of life as an individual Christian trying to walk in a way that pleases God, how do I know? How do I know how to handle my finances? How do I know how to, to think about marriage? How do I know how to think about my, my ministry in the church? How, how do I know how to, to think about these things? And oftentimes, the answer to that question, how do I know what God wants me to do, sometimes the, the answers we come up, to, come up with are, are not very wise, very sound answers. We might as a church say, well, let's look at what other churches do, and that, and that will determine what we do as a church on a Sunday morning or throughout the week or what ministries we have. Or let's Let's, let's ask the question, answer the question by saying, well, well, what would get the most people in the doors? And, and we'll do that. And whatever that is, that's what we'll do as a church. Or maybe as an individual say, well, you know, I just, I'm just going to ask myself, what, what feels right to me? And that's what I'll do. 
Well, those, of course, can lead us down some very dangerous paths. This morning, we're talking about, of course, the Word of God and the, the centrality that the ministry of the Word of God has in the life of the church. We're going to talk some this morning about how I believe we've gotten away from the centrality of the Word as, as a culture in our, our modern evangelical world. But, but first, I want to begin this morning by reading some words that were written over 300 years ago. These were written uh, published in 1689. Uh, they're called the, the, it was in a work called the Second London Baptist Confession, and these were written by Reformed Baptists to help the people around them understand what they believed as, as Baptists. And, and Baptist here, I don't mean like there were no Southern Baptists at the time or American Baptists or um, conservative Baptists. This just means Baptist in a doctrinal sense, theological people who are convinced theologically of the the truth of Baptist doctrine. Here's what they wrote. In fact, this is how they they began their confession of faith, chapter 1. They they began chapter 1 with these words that people would understand what they believed about Scripture. Listen to this. This is very beautiful. It says, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence Uh, do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, those are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary for salvation. So we can look at general revelation around us and we can find out some very true and helpful things about God, but those things that we would find out aren't sufficient in and of themselves to help us know what we need to do to be saved and how to, to live our lives. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters wrote very similar words in their great confession, the the Westminster Confession of Faith. They began their confession the same way. In fact, our confessions are very, between Baptist and Presbyterian, are very similar because the Baptists copied a lot of the things the Presbyterians wrote, you know. They worded them very well. In fact, in fact, and look at the main idea this morning, I'm going to in keeping with Baptist tradition, uh, copy some words that are well said as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. Here's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 3 and think about it in the life of, of the church. The Word of God, the Word of God is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience for Christ's church. What, what does that mean? The Word of God is the only sufficient, certain, an infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience for Christ's church. Just a couple words I want to draw your attention there as we we begin to look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. First of all, that word sufficient. The the word of God is the only sufficient source of authority we have. And sufficient there means that it, it has all that we need, all that we need for salvation, for faith, for knowing how to walk in obedience to God. It's, it's certain. We, we can stake our very souls on the certainty of the authority of God's Word. It's infallible. As we follow Scripture and walk in obedience to it, we know we will not go wrong. As I, as I live my life in obedience to God's Word, it will not fail me. I can be, be certain that it's sufficient. And there's one other word I want to draw your attention to there. It's, it's the word only. There is no other source to which we can turn that, that we can be confident that it's going to be sufficient, certain, and infallible. I am an insufficient, uncertain, fallible rule in and of myself. My feelings, 
what other churches do, all these things can sometimes be helpful. General revelation, sometimes they can be helpful, but there's only one certain, sufficient, infallible rule, and it's the Word of God. And so here in 1 Samuel, it's very interesting. We're seeing the establishment of Samuel as a prophet. He is going to be one who proclaims God's word to a people who desperately need to hear God's word, believe God's word, and obey God's word. And so there's going to be kind of four topics we're going to consider this morning as we think about the centrality of the word of God and the ministry of the life of the church. Here's the first topic I want us to think about from verse 1, and that's the need of God's word. Look at the text with me if you would. The need of God's word. Verse 1 says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli or before the Lord and or before Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There's two things I want you to notice there. First of all, notice the nature of Samuel's ministry and then notice the the need for the word of God. So look at first of all the nature of Samuel's ministry. What does it tell us about what he's doing there? Samuel is there in Shiloh. He's ministering where the Ark of the Covenant is in the tent of meeting there in Shiloh with Eli. And it says that he's ministering to the Lord. So he's helping this, this ministry to the Lord take place. And it's in the presence of or, or under Eli. That's, he's under Eli's authority, under his tutelage as he engages in this ministry. Now, verse 7 will tell us that Eli or that Samuel doesn't yet know the Lord. And I believe when the narrator says that Samuel doesn't know the Lord, that means something different than in chapter 2 when it says Eli's sons didn't know the Lord. In, in chapter 2, when it talks about Hophni and Phinehas not knowing the Lord, it means in the sense that they have, they have been exposed to God and they've rejected him and there's no relationship with God. Here, it's, it's saying that, that Samuel's not yet rejected the Lord and, and yet he's not yet in the fullness of his relationship with him. He hasn't been established as a prophet. That's going to happen by the end of the chapter. Eli's sons are doing things away from their father, but Samuel remains in the presence of Eli underneath his ministry. And the second thing we see here in verse 1 is not just the nature of Samuel's ministry, but the need this culture has for God's word. Remember, when is this being written? Or when, is, when are these events taking place? They're taking place at the end of the time of the judges. Samuel's the last judge here. And this is a time of great spiritual apostasy and darkness for the nation of Israel. They've rejected the Lord. They've rejected God's revelation. And more specifically, they're, they're even there here in Shiloh, they've been doing things that are in violation of what God's word says that people are to do to worship him. And so, as, as we look at what's, what's taking place here, but we see that they are in a culture that has not responded in obedience to God's word. It says here in verse 1 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So not only are they disobedient to the revealed word that they have, there's a time that, of, of distance from God, distance from his special revelation. And this word of God is needed it's interesting, you can't quite see this as, as easily, you see it, but not maybe as easily in the English text here, but in the, the Hebrew, there, the, the word word is used nine, I think nine times that the noun for, for word is used, often in conjunction with the word of the Lord. And then the, the verbal form is, is used, I think, four times, so the, the, the verbal form of that, 
of that root for word. So for example, you may not see it as easily in the English text, but if you look in, in verse 9, for example, it says, uh, therefore Eli said to Sima, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your, your servant hears. And, and that word of, the God, of God calling is the idea of, of word. Verse 17 he says, don't hide from me all that he told you. And again, there's that idea of, of God's word that you see a little bit easier in the, in the Hebrew text. So over and over again, some, some 15 times in these 21 verses, the idea of the word of the Lord is occurring. The word of the Lord is, is the point of this passage. Visions, special revelation are rare, but the word of the Lord is needed by these people. And here's how Samuel is established. He's established in this chapter as someone who has the authority and the ability to speak the words of the Lord. Now, again, point of the story is going to be why Samuel has the authority in 1 Samuel to speak God's word to this culture that desperately needs God's word, his special revelation. How does this apply to the church? Our needs as a church in this culture, we also live in a time where the word of God is, is neglected. Now, we live after the fullness of God's redemptive plan has, has been made known. The mystery of Christ has been revealed, but there's no longer special revelation that's adding to, to Scripture. Scripture is, is complete. The canon is closed. We have all we need. But I would argue that, that God's revelation, even though we have it in, in its fullness in the Word of God, it's still rare. Why is it rare? Why is it rare in our culture just as it is in Samuel's day? Well, for some of the similar reasons. We also are rejecting the special revelation from God that we have. To, to answer the question we, we asked earlier, what do we, how do we know what we should do? We sometimes answer that question with rather strange answers. Mysticism or our feelings or self-help resources or pop psychology. Or sometimes we even turn to, to political groups and ask, well, how do we know what we should do is the people of God. But sadly, the clear revelation that God has provided us is, is pushed the periphery to, to the edges of church life. Let me read some words, some rather lengthy words from, from David Wells. David Wells wrote an article called The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. And he says, his argument basically is that we as a, as a church in North American culture, have become immersed in a, in a consumer culture. And the consumer culture in which we live is affecting the church. Listen to what he writes. He says, what we decide to do as a church, what ministries we offer and, and so forth, is, is shaped by a marketing ethos. This shouldn't be surprising at all. Americans are nothing if not consumers, consumers of all things, of, of images, relationships. We have 7% of the world's population, but we consume 33% of the goods and services. We're, we're inundated, he argues, with advertisements. Our whole society, our whole society, I think this is very true, has been transformed into a consumer's heaven, and we are nothing if not a nation of buyers, thoroughly at home in and thoroughly a part of the life of commerce. We move in and out of it as much like fish do through water. And it is in this commerce that we live and move and have our being. And so the church's willingness to adapt to the marketing model for thinking about itself really is not remarkable. People approach the church as, as consumers. Leaders lead as marketers. And then he argues this. He, he says, it's not that we deny theological beliefs as a church. 
but they have little cash value. They don't matter. And he gives an illustration here. He also gave in his book, No Place for Truth. He says it's like a child neglected in a home. The child hasn't been abducted. The child's there. The child's in the home, but it has no legitimate place in the family. And he says the research that I've conducted strongly points to the fact that where this kind of theological character is, is crumbling, there the centrality of God is disappearing. In the broader culture, 91 of, 91% of people say that God is very important to them, but only 66% go on to say that they believe in moral absolute truth. We must, he writes, recover the lost word of God. The problem isn't that the Bible itself has disappeared, and he, he talks about how accessible the Scripture is. He says, instead, it does not rest consequentially upon us. It does not cut. It's one of the great ironies of our time that in the 70s and 80s, we were putting so much effort into defining things like inspiration and looking at the best words to express and protect inspiration, which we should have done. But all while that was taking place, unnoticed by us, the church was quietly, listen to this, the church was quietly unhitching itself from the truth of Scripture in practice. Biblical inspiration was affirmed, but its consequences were not worked out for our preaching, our techniques for growing the church, our techniques for healing our own fractured selves. These all happened largely without the use of Scripture. It's as if we think that while the Bible is inspired, it's inadequate. Inadequate to the task of sustaining and nourishing the church today. I, I think he's hitting on something here. We need God's word. What's the application here as we look at verse 1 and think about the need for God's word in both Samuel's day and ours? Here's, here's the application I would give you. We must cry out for God's word as a church and accept no substitutes. What do we find in the Word of God? It's in the Word of God that we find the gospel. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It's in the, it's in the, the, the Word of God that we are to, to, to look and to long for Christ as the church. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. It's in the scripture that we find hope. Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It's in scripture that we find our sanctification. James 1, 21. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's our only sufficient source of authority. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God. Nothing else we can say we have that confidence in. All Scripture, though, is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We must, as a church, say, what does God's Word say? Give me God's Word. Don't give me your thoughts. Don't give me your opinions. I don't care about your latest hot take on whatever issue that it is before us. Tell me, what does God's word say? Because that's what I need. And just as the word of God was rare in the days of Samuel, so it is today. What does God's word 
tell me about how to treat my wife? What does God's word tell me about how to respond to my parents? What does God's word say about how I'm to engage in work? What does God's word say about how I'm to, to view and treat my sexuality, my talents, my friendships? Cry out for God's word. Secondly, here's a second topic I want us to think about this morning as we think about the centrality of the, the word of God and the life of the church. Number two, let's talk about the call of God's word. God's, we see, God we see here, issues a special call on some to, to minister the word. Here there's a special call that recognizes that the community of faith needs those who will proclaim God's word, and here it happens in a very supernatural way. And, and there's three things I want you to notice in these verses. First of all, notice the darkness. Again, we, we see this is a culture that's, that's dark, and I think the narrator is drawing our attention to that. In verse 2 it says, Eli's eyesight has begun to grow dim. Eli's getting older. And I think the narrator could have drawn our attention to several aspects of, of Eli's growing age, but uh, later he's going to talk about how, how big Eli is. But I think he's, he's here drawing our attention to his eyesight because it's not just the, the physical darkness that we see taking place here. It's a, it's a spiritual darkness. And, and Eli, even Eli, has, has difficulty seeing. It says that it's, it's night, the lamp of God is, is burning, and it hasn't gone out yet, but it's, it's dark. And so this, this lamp of God that w- they were commanded to burn in the tent of meeting throughout, from sundown to sunup, it's, it's burning right now. So it's this light in the midst of darkness. So notice first here the darkness. But notice also here the hope. It says the lamp of God had not yet gone out, so there's, it's still burning, and, and because it's drawing to our, to our attention the fact that it's eventually going to go out, it's, it's saying, okay, dawn is coming. There's, there's light that's here and light that's coming. There's hope. And then there's a call. And in verses 2 through 14, we see the, the call on Samuel, and there's a couple things that I want you to notice that the narrator tells us here about Samuel's call to ministry. First of all, notice that God sovereignly calls him. Samuel doesn't decide that he's going to be called. This is God's work. God, God calls him. And not all are called. Not all hear the voice. It's, it's Samuel. So Samuel's lying down. It's, it's night. He's called one time by the Lord. Samuel responds, here I am in verse 4. And he goes to Eli. You called me. Eli says, nope, didn't. Go lie down again. Samuel's a little confused. Goes down, lies down. And then it happens again a second time. This, this call is not immediately recognized, and he comes again, says, I'm here, and Eli goes, uh, didn't call you, lie down again, and verse 7 again tells us that Samuel doesn't yet know, the Lord doesn't recognize what's taking place, and then the third time, verse 8, the Lord calls Samuel a third time, and he goes to Eli, here I am, uh, you called me, well, not sure exactly what's going on here, and Eli begins to understand draws our attention to the fact that people who are spiritually mature often help others discern their calling, or those who are in positions of leadership help others discern their calling, even in a special circumstance like this. And so, so Eli tells Samuel, look, go lie down, and this time, if he calls again, tell him, look, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I'm willing to hear what you have to say. And so Samuel does that, and the Lord calls And we see here another thing about the call of the Lord on a person, on a a man to proclaim his word. We see that it's God who's the one who gives the message. The message here 
is not a fun message. This is not a, a pleasant message that Samuel receives from the Lord. Verse 11, he says, look, God says to Samuel, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will, will tingle. This is going to be something that, that causes people to, to be aghast at what happens. I'm, I'm going to fulfill all that I've spoken. So he tells them the things that we saw in chapter 2 that the prophet spoke concerning Eli's house. Yes, those things are definitely going to happen. You need to tell Samuel. The whole point of 1 Samuel chapter 3, the reason 1 Samuel chapter 3 occurs here in the story is to help us understand why Samuel has this ministry. Why does Samuel have the authority that he has in these beginning chapters and, and even later as we go through the book of Samuel, why does Samuel have this authority? And the answer is, it, it, excuse me, the answer isn't because Samuel is just some guy that decided to take upon the mantle himself. It's not because Samuel is especially wise and, and says, you know what, I, I've, I'm really able to discern the culture. I'm going to speak some truth to Eli because I figured out what's going on here. No, the, the reason that Samuel has this authority is because he says what God tells him to say. This message isn't Samuel's message. This ministry isn't Samuel's ministry. This is God's message and God's ministry. And Samuel simply is faithful to do what God calls him to do. Now, here's how I believe this relates to us as a church. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is not how ministers of the Word are called today. In fact, if you were to come to me and say, Daniel, I think I'm called to the ministry. And I would say, uh, why? And you would say, I was lying down last night. The Lord called me audibly. And I said, speak. Your servant is listening. He said, go talk to I, was, I say, you know what? I think we have some things to talk about. Uh, that would not be definitive proof for me that you were called to the ministry. We'd have some things to talk about, including our doctrinal statement. Um, but here's where I think there is a parallel. The community of faith still has a need, doesn't it? The community of faith, the church, has a need for men who are called to declare God's word to his people. And we as a church have the responsibility to help men discern that call and affirm them in that call. And I was just introduced to a really great resource, if this is something that interests you. Uh, it's a three-volume work by a man named, a pastor named Albert Martin. It's called Pastoral Theology, designed to help prepare men for ministry. Really great resource. I'm, I'm still kind of in the beginning of the first volume, but in the beginning of the first volume, he quotes another author who observes several wrong ways to affirm your calling. And he says, you know, sometimes people believe you need some sort of miraculous call, like there needs to be some sort of miraculous event or some providential thing that's beyond human explanation. And unless you have that, you're not really called to ministry. I remember whenever I was first being interviewed by a, a church to, to come on as, as a pastor here in the central Illinois area, there was one leader in particular at, at the church who said, look, if you can't, you know, if, if you can't tell me something like really amazing, that only God could have done some sort of sovereign act of God that is, is is, is part of your call, then I don't think you're really called here. And I was, I was a little stressed out about that because I, I couldn't point to some sort of miraculous event. You know, I wasn't, you know, uh, lying down at night or, or in church one, one day praying and, and suddenly the, the heavens opened up and there was a, a little angel saying, you must preach or, you know, that, that didn't happen, right? That didn't happen. Instead, 
Martin talks about four words that I think are really good. Uh, aspiration, qualification, confirmation, and recognition. That's aspiration. There's, there's a, a God-given desire for ministry. Not a God-given desire just to stand up and talk to people, but a, a God-given desire to, to shepherd with God's word. There's, there's qualification. You, you, you don't just say, well, I think, I'm, I, think I should be a, a pastor, but, but it, it's, you, you meet what God's special revelation says about the qualifications of, of a pastor, elder. There's, there's confirmation. So other spiritual people, the, the, the people that you teach in a Sunday school class or the, the people who are in your care group, your church leadership says, yeah, yeah we, we, we see these giftings in you. And then there's recognition. There's formal recognition by the body of Christ for that ministry. I, I think that's what Martin would say. I, I read the four words. I didn't get to that chapter yet, but I think that's what he would say. So here's what I would say as well. Look, um, All of us are called for ministry, right? All of us are called to, to exercise our spiritual gifts. So there's application for everyone in here who's a believer. I encourage you in that. But I also say there's a special application for those of you who are thinking about being pastor elders. T talk with other elders about this. And as we plant churches and revitalize, I believe that the Lord is, is growing more uh, who would have these, these giftings. We want to recognize those giftings and, and encourage shepherds. We need men who are called to proclaim God's word. It's desperately needed by the church. That brings us to the third topic as we think about the, the importance of the ministry of the word and the life of the church. Number three, let's talk about the declaration of God's word. It's not enough to have people who believe in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. It's not enough to have people who say, yeah, I'm called to preach the word. We need to actually declare it. It's not enough to just have the word. It must be declared. You know, as, as the kids did this morning, we have to sometimes uh, cup our hands and, and yell out the gospel to the people who are in our lives, usually figuratively speaking, right? Listen to what happens next. Samuel has been given a, a hard word. This is not an easy word that, that he has from the Lord. That's, there's, there's the hardness of the word we see here first. There, it, it's, it's, it's a word that causes ears to, to tingle, Samuel lays down. He's, he's not excited about the truth that he is called to proclaim. He loves Eli, right? Eli has been a spiritual mentor to him, a, a father. Eli calls him earlier in the chapter, what, my, my son. There's, there's a close relationship between Eli and Samuel. And now Samuel has been called by God to declare some very unpleasant truths. The response of the word by Eli is encouraging, right? On one hand. Eli has many problems we've seen. He has a problem of passivity, of not, of not rightly honoring God and his glory, but, but he's willing to receive God's word. In fact, Eli calls Samuel to him, verse 16, and, and it's similar to how the Lord and Samuel interacted, right? Samuel, my son, here I am. And, and now Eli says, what was it that he told you? Don't, don't hide anything from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from all that he told you. And so Eli says, look, I, I want the word. Give me the truth. And so Samuel gives it to him. He declares all of it. 
the declaration of God's word is, is a hard thing to do at times. I've had many conversations with, with some of you who've been in some really hard situations with, with family members, with, with coworkers, with friends, and you've said, look, look Daniel, I, I, I know what God's word says about what's going on in this person's life. The, the difficulty is I don't necessarily want, want to say it. I love this person, and for me to, to tell them about what God's Word says and, and the, these things that they're thinking through, it could damage our relationship. It could ruin our friendship. In fact, just this, this past week, I was talking with another pastor about something that, a truth that I, I felt like he needed to speak into, and, and he was saying, look, if I do that, I, I'm worried about the re- response that I'm going to receive. You know, I, I want to win people to the gospel with, with friendliness and, and kindness and, and winsomeness, and, and there's certainly a place for that. And it's certainly true that the manner in which we sometimes present hard truths is, is not a helpful manner, but the reality is that, is that God's word is a word that's to be declared. And the friends that you have in your life who are making decisions that are in contradiction to how God tells them to live, and the family members who are making decisions that will lead to their eternal ruin, the reality is both your friends and family can easily find voices that will affirm them in what they're doing. It is not hard to find another church or to find other Christians who will say, yeah, 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 do what you want to do. Let your, let your own conscience be your guide. Let, let whatever you feel God would want you to do, that's what you should do. It is not hard to find a church that will affirm a person in that. It is not hard to find a friend or a family member who will pat someone on the back and say, they're there, good job, great decision, as they're on their road to hell. What God calls us to do with the centrality of his word is to say, look, if we love these people, we have the the awesome responsibility before God to declare to them hard truths, not because we're excited about it and are excited about the hard things that await them, but because we love them enough to desire to, to turn them from a path that's going to lead to their eternal ruin. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and instructing everyone with all wisdom. So we're, we're careful as we do it. We're loving as we do it. We do it wisely, but we proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, instructing everyone with all wisdom so we, we, we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this I toil, working with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And if, if we want to stop proclaiming Christ in his word, we are no longer a church. We might as well just become a social club, right? But don't call yourself a church, don't call yourself believers if you don't want to proclaim God's word. We must proclaim God's truth. Most importantly, the gospel, the good news that we can come into relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can have relationship with God, and that's the centrality of the message that we proclaim. Application, we must be prepared to declare God's word. Last truth here that I want us to talk about, last topic, the certainty of God's word. The certainty of God's word. It says in verse 19, Samuel, oh, again, we see Eli's response. Let me just, just touch on that. It says, Eli responds by, by believing what God says. It's the Lord, let him do what, what seems good to him. And so Samuel continues in this ministry. Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and he let, it says he let none of his words fall to the ground. So we see God establishing Samuel as a prophet, as, as one who proclaims God's word. Uh, you you know, maybe notice here, 
similar wording from the book of Joshua. When we went through the book of Joshua, it says that none of the words of the Lord fail, fell. And so the, the same is true of Samuel here. Not because Samuel is so smart, but because Samuel is proclaiming God's words. None of Samuel's words, which are God's words, fall to the ground. He's established. He's a true prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, it's, it's not a word of the Lord. But these are God's words, and all Israel is accountable to him. They have to listen to him, not because of Samuel, but because of the authority of God. It says, from Dan to Beersheba, that's from north to south, all of Israel, Samuel is established as a prophet of the Lord. That, that word prophet means one who, who speaks what God says. Now, how does that apply for us? None of God's words will fall to the ground. The word of God is the only thing to which we can turn and, and be certain that it will not fall, that it will not fail. We can build our lives on the word of God. We can stake and must stake our eternal destiny on the truth of God's word. Build your life, stake your soul upon the certainty of God's word and walk in obedience to it, church. Here's what the prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things, the entirety of the universe that you can see, I have made. All these things came to be, declares the Lord. There is nothing in all of the universe that we can see, that we cannot see, that didn't come from the Lord. And as our ability to look at general revelation has increased, our understanding of the vastness of God has only increased. And so if it was true in the time of Isaiah 66 that God was other, how much more true is it for us today as we realize the absolute otherness of God? He is beyond our ability to comprehend or to think, and this is the God that we worship. How in the world can a, a God who holds the, in, the infiniteness of, the, of all the galaxies in the universe in his hand, how can that God be aware of us? This is but he goes on to say, he says, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one that I will be aware of and know and be in relationship with. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God in his vastness is mindful of us. And he gives us his, his word so we can know him intimately and be in relationship with him and walk with him. And so what must we do? humble ourselves, recognize we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to answer the question, what must I do? Instead, plead with God, let me know in your word. You must study God's word. Read it. Obey it. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, preaching on this passage in Isaiah 66, said this about a, a tender heart, this, this heart that God will be mindful of. He says this, a tender heart is such as a heart as yields easily to God's touch. We know that if you lay your, your finger upon wool, it yields, but lay your finger on, on a, a stone and it will not yield. Lay your finger upon flesh and flesh will, will yield, but lay your finger upon iron and it will not yield. So a heart that yields to God is, is the soft, tender heart 
The heart that stands out against God is the hard heart. When a man will easily yield to the touch of God's word, he shall be easily convinced by God's word and not stand objecting against the word of God. When this happens, conscience will easily yield to what is said and apply the word to itself, and the will shall fall down before the word. Although before the heart went after wickedness, yet now when the word comes to oppose it, the will of a man gives way to God's word. Let God's word take place and not my will, says such a soul. Brothers and sisters, do you have such a heart this morning? When you hear God's word telling you to, to, to flee sexual immorality or to forgive your enemies or, or to give generously, what, what does your heart do? Is your heart hard and say, no, I'm going to do what, what I desire to do. I'm going to walk in the way that, that I desire to walk. I'm going to trust in myself, not just for, for my salvation, but in my, my day-to-day life. I'm going to have myself be my ultimate authority or do instead say, God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and letting me know where I erred. My, my thoughts are not right. My heart is not right. My, my mind is not what it needs to be. Thank you for your word that reveals yourself to me, that reveals your plan. Create softness within me. Give me conviction. Give me your words of life, O oh God, and I will live by them. The word of God, the word of God is needed. It's our only sufficient, certain, infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience for our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Soften us, we pray. Lord, help us to, to, to first of all, personally believe your word and, and then to declare it. And as we declare it, help us to do so in a, a loving way and in kind ways and gracious ways. Where there are those who are discouraged, who need to be encouraged, help us to take your word and, and apply it to them. Where, there's, where there are those who are, are proud, who need to be humbled, we pray that we'd bring them your word as well so they could, could, could turn and, and live and experience life. And, and Father, let that begin with us. Let that process of being confronted with your word begin in our own hearts this morning. Let us turn from sin, see the beauty of your son Jesus as revealed in your word, and trust in him and in him alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.